Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning uh, or an app, you want to pull it up to Genesis chapter 1, the very first page of the first first book in the Bible. Let's pray and ask God for his help, and then we'll dive in. Father, we are a part of a people that we must confess have devalued life increasingly over the years. And the very fact that we have a Sanctity of Human Life Sunday is built on a day of infamy in our nation's history. A day when seven unelected men decided somehow that there is a constitutional right to withdraw the right to life from a certain class of people in our nation. A class that by any description has to be defined as the most vulnerable class. And yet here we are. I pray like Daniel that You would forgive us, Lord God. You would forgive us. It's not just decisions that have been made out there by someone else. But we are all culpable. And that you would stir in our hearts a restoration toward life. One that would say to little children, we're going to protect you come what may. To those who have no voice of their own, who have no strength of their own, who have no power of their own, who have no lobbyists of their own, who don't have a dollar bill to their name, we will protect you. We will fight for you. We will speak up for you. We pray that there would be a new wind that would sweep across our land, that would fight for the little ones that would speak, that would phone Congress, that would stand in the streets, that would speak to a neighbor in defense of these ones' right to live. And we pray for ourselves as a church, a local church, Lord, that we would not be shy and retiring and back away from this call on behalf of those who cannot speak for themselves. I pray this morning as we look into the word that your spirit would speak to us. There might be someone here this morning who might be contemplating an abortion. We pray that your Holy Spirit would do a work of grace in their heart. We know there are folks here this morning who have been through abortion. And we pray that you would pour out the salving grace of your spirit on their lives. For surely all of us stand before you as criminals, not just those who have had abortion. And all of us have been offered your grace in Jesus Christ, full and complete forgiveness. And so we pray that you would encourage those this morning. And I pray that the enemy would have no uh, opportunity to move among us, work among us, that rather the spirit would. 
and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to imagine this morning, if you are a woman under the age of 30, and imagine that you suddenly found that you are pregnant. It wasn't wanted, wasn't planned, but here you are. According to our church records, that might be about 120 of you. And in the great state of Pennsylvania, that's the majority age of women who get abortions, 29 and under. If you found yourself pregnant, you didn't want to be. That little child that is growing within your womb would have to compete with a whole battery of possibilities in order to live. It might be a competition for education. I don't want to... I'm in the middle of my sophomore year in college, and I, I want to be able to finish my college degree. It might be a matter of money. In fact, 40% of women who get abortions say, I'm just not financially ready for a child. It might be a relationship issue. It might be a marriage or a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship that is not healthy, and you're afraid to bring a child into that relationship. That child's going to have all kinds of things to compete with in order for it to survive, to make it out of the womb safe and intact. Increasingly, the debate in our country for the last almost 50 years has been, but what about the other people beside the baby? What about the parents who will be thrust into a situation where they're not able to pay? As of 2015, the average cost of a middle-income family to raise a child from 0 to 17 was about $234,000. And so what will the life of those parents be like? What will the relationship as a, 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 a couple, boyfriend and girlfriend or husband and wife, what will that relationship be like if they are forced into having a child they really don't want to have? What are the chances that relationship remains intact with that? Even the child itself the prospect of that child's future becomes more important than the life itself. And so those who are pro-choice would say, you know, the child who comes into a situation where they really don't, the parents don't really want the child and the parents don't really have the money for the child, what are the chances of that child really making it in life? In other words, all the situations beyond the child's existence become paramount. Last year, the Avengers movie, Infinity War, which raked in, um, became one of the top uh, all-time uh, box office hits, over $2 billion in proceeds, presented the backdrop of this abortion debate in incredible clarity, in my opinion. The bad guy in the movie, if you've seen it, is named Thanos. Interesting little factoid. Thanos in Greek means death. 
And Thanos has been rampaging all over the galaxies, killing half of the population of each planet that he goes to. And he's, by his own argument, he says, I'm, I'm not really a murderous being. I'm, I'm looking out for the universe. Take a look at this interesting exchange between him and his adopted daughter. I was a child when you took me. I saved you. No. No. We were happy on my home planet. Going to bed hungry, scrounging for scraps. Your planet was on the brink of collapse. I'm the one who stopped that. Do you know what's happened since then? The children born have known nothing but full bellies and clear skies. It's a paradise. Because you murdered half the planet. A small price to pay for salvation. You're insane. Little one, it's a simple calculus. This universe is finite, its resources finite. If life is left unchecked, life will cease to exist. It needs correction. You don't know that! I'm the only one who knows that. At least I'm the only one with the will to act on it. Pragmatism. What seems to make sense. It's a simple calculus. The universe is finite. Resources are finite. Therefore, we have to eliminate or narrow down the number of mouths to feed. The argument against abortion cannot be based on pragmatism. It has to be based on something larger and bigger. Is it or is it not true that fundamentally you, when you look in the mirror, you, 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 have an intrinsic worth that goes beyond your beauty, that goes beyond your ability to contribute something meaningful to the intellectual or moral life of the world or the community in which you live in? Is there something in you that goes beyond, is there something that makes you worthwhile beyond what you can contribute? And the answer from the word of God is yes. That human beings in and of themselves are sacred because of something that God has put in them. Valerie Tarico is a, a woman who uh, grew up in a Christian family. She went to kind of the bastion of evangelical Christianity for college. She went to Wheaton College. Uh, she is a clinical psychologist, PhD, and has become a, an atheist. And not only would she say she's pro-life, but she's uh, also pro-abortion. In fact, just a couple of years ago, she wrote a piece that has kind of made her a darling of the pro-choice crowd entitled, Why I'm Not Only Pro-Choice, But Pro-Abortion. And this is what she says. <clears throat> this is one of her 10 points. I'm pro-abortion because I think morality is about the well-being of sentient beings. Now, she's going to define what sentient means, a, a being that can experience life or pain, pleasure, and so forth. I believe that morality is about the lived experience of sentient beings, beings who can feel pleasure and pain, preference and intention, who at their most complex can live in relation to other beings, love and be loved, and value their own existence. 
in this moral universe, and you notice how she uh, uh, kind of hijacks our language. In this moral universe, real people count more than potential people, meaning the preborn. Real people count more than hypothetical people or corporate people, in other words, as a group. And because of this mentality and this kind of thinking, we have paid the price over the last 46 years at the tune of 61 million dead children. And that number is somewhat squishy because not all states in the union report the numbers of abortion to the CDC. This is a grievous evil. And if you look at the history of the decision Roe v. Wade back in January 22nd, 1973, you will, might be blown away to discover that the Supreme Court justices that made the majority ruling on this case founded, and I use that word um, somewhat um, ironically, they found the right to abortion in the 14th Amendment the United States Constitution. Now, the 14th Amendment was written and enacted three years after the end of the Civil War. And it was written for the purpose of uh, protecting the rights of newly American citizens, namely the slave, the freed slaves. And this is what the amendment says. Listen carefully. So imagine, this is designed to protect African Americans in the nation from Harm from withdrawal of rights. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. So they're a citizen not only of the U.S., but a citizen of Pennsylvania or Maryland or Kansas or California. No state, this was a, of course, this is an amendment to the Constitution, so this applies to all 50 states. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life. We could stop there. This is the 14th Amendment, the grounds on which seven Supreme Court justices decided that we have a right to abortion in this country. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. The irony blows me away. That the amendment that was designed to protect people is now used to exterminate an entire class of people, the most vulnerable in our midst. And for us who believe that there is a God who judges the universe and holds it, holds it accountable, we see more than simply a vulnerable group of people. Now we get to Genesis chapter 1. For God has said from the beginning that he puts his stamp on all of us, all of you, all of your neighbors, from the greatest to the least. Next Sunday um, Jack Crowley is going to be here to speak on the image of God in the poor. And then the following Sunday, our own Ed Bear will be speaking about the image of God uh, in the prisoner. And one of the things that we have to 
come to grips with when we read what we're about to read is that God has his imprint on the person not only that you like the most, but the person that you like the least. This is what God said in the Council of the Trinity, beginning of verse 26, God the Father speaking to God the Son and to God the Holy Spirit. Then God said, verse, uh, verse 26, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. And so he did. Verse 27, so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the seas, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Now this is a declaration that you and I bear something of the image of God. You have an, in, in, uh, an distinct an intricate personality, and it's different from the person next to you and the person in front of you and the person beside you. But make no mistake, it is a personality that has come from God and represents God. You have the ability to think, you have the ability to will and to, and to impose your will on people and problems and the earth. You have the ability to have relationships in a way that other creatures that God has made do not. You stand out from the red-tailed hawk. You are distinct from the salmon. You're, you're different from the daddy long legs, all of which are creatures as well. But none of them bear the stamp of God. Only the human being who is entrusted with ruling over them, reign over them, govern it, language of the text. Now, Inasmuch as we bear as human beings this stamp of God uniquely above all of creation, this creates fundamental problems for us if we want to entertain the possibility that God used, for example, evolution to create the world. Because if there were prior beings to humans that became humanoid then, at what point does God instill upon them, place upon them his stamp? Far different if he simply made a human being and the stamp was on him from the beginning. Now the fact of the matter is that when God created Adam and Eve, he created them to be perfect. He created everything around them perfect. He created them perfect, and that was his plan, but that didn't go well. And so we read in Genesis chapter 3 that mankind that he had made rose up in rebellion against God, defied him, disobeyed him, sinned against him. And we have thistles and weeds and cancer and diabetes and end of life as a result. And you might wonder, well, does that mean that the image of God, the, this stamp of God on us, uniquely on human beings, has been gone, taken away, eradicated? So let me take you to Genesis 9. 
where I think that's answered. Now, this is, <clears throat> this is right after the great flood. God has wiped out all li- life on earth with the exception of Noah and his family, <clears throat> his sons and their wives, and all the animals that he had taken into the ark to preserve them during the flood. And so they're out, they've, uh, the waters have receded, Noah and his family have left the ark, the animals have left the ark. Verse 5, God says this, And I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. So if you're out walking in the trail in Yellowstone and a cougar attacks you or a grizzly bear attacks you, by God's moral right, that animal should be put to death. And anyone who murders a fellow human being must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his own image. For God made human beings. In other words, the reason that that murderer must be put to death is not because uh, there's, there's something specially awful about him that his sin puts him in a unique category before God, but rather because he has taken the image of God. And God says, if you do that, you must pay the ultimate price. Now this, of course, we often have the conversation in our culture about whether or not capital punishment is effective. Does it actually deter uh, horrible crimes like murder? The argument of Scripture says that's not the place to go to. We might ask the, the question, well, is it, really, um, is it really right to treat violence with violence? In other words, if a mur- someone murders someone, should we then put that person to death? Is, doesn't that perpetuate the violence? Again, God is saying here that the fundamental problem is someone has taken the image of God wrongfully. Now, we don't make those decisions. We're not. In Congress, we don't make the decisions about laws, but this should inform our thinking about how we view issues like this in our culture. What does ultimately God have to say? And so the point here that God is making is that we still apparently bear his, this is long after the fall, we still bear the image of God even after our sinning. And so God has consequences for those who kill the innocent. Proverbs six seventeen. Uh, sorry, 6, 16 and 17, talks about the seven things that God hates. Lying, so forth, hands that shed innocent blood, that kill the innocent. And so when we talk about abortion, we're talking about something where the great crime is the defilement of the image of God and the taking of the life of a little child. And so we want to be, as people who believe that God has made us in his image, including those little ones. We want to be part of saving lives, including these preborn children. This morning, I want us to veer just off of that a little bit. Normally on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, we simply talk about abortion and we talk about protecting the lives of the preborn. But I want us to... I want us to think holistically about this challenge. I want us to think holistically about children in general. That is that we as followers of Jesus Christ, not just called to save these children, but serve them. You know, it's no, there's no doubt that Jesus would have loved to have had a wife, to be married, and to have children of his own. 
There's no doubt that Jesus would have loved to have had um, a prosperous cabinet-making business. There's no doubt that Jesus would have loved to have loyal friends that stood by him. There's no doubt that he would have loved the applause of the, cl- of the crowd. And there's no doubt that he would have loved a long life. And yet when you look at what happened to Jesus, he didn't have a wife. He never had children. He didn't have a successful cabinet-making business. In fact, he was penniless for most of his life. Didn't even own an apartment or a house that he could stay in. And while he had 12 men that stood beside him sort of at the end of the day, they either betrayed him or abandoned him in his hour of need. He had the applause of a crowd for a while, but then they mostly turned their backs on him as well. And then he was 33 when he was treacherously conspired against and lost his life. And why would he do all that? Shouldn't life be about fulfillment and satisfaction and joy and delight? Jesus said it best, I think, in Mark 10, 45. He said, for even the Son of Man is referencing himself. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the call of Jesus on our lives is the same. The call is not simply to see how much we can accumulate here in this earth, not to see how, much, how many fun times that we can have. Nothing wrong with them. But for those of us who have thrown our lot in with Jesus, the call to, on us is the same as the call of his father was to him. is to serve. In fact, Jesus died to himself to liberate us from living for ourselves. My life verse is 2 Corinthians 5.15. It says that Jesus died for all so that those who live, let me clarify that. He's saying that Jesus died his life to pay a ransom for all, but it's only potential. That apart from repentance and faith, there is no salvation in Jesus Christ's blood. We don't get the benefits of it. We don't get the merits of it. But Jesus died for all. Potentially, his death was satisfactory for all. But then he's talking about those who live, meaning those who have repented and put faith in Jesus. But for those who live, died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised to life for them. I don't care what you do in life. I don't care what you've dedicated yourself to. I don't care how much money you're trying to accumulate. I don't care what kind of thing you enjoy and I enjoy. At the end of the day, we are here not for ourselves. We are here for him. And that means we serve in a thousand different ways. If we look back at the history of the church, one of the most impactful things on the culture has been the way the church has served. Not just their own, but their communities. In 252 AD, a plague swept the Roman Empire. 5,000 people were dying a day just in the city of Rome. It hit Carthage too, which was in North Africa, was today Tunisia. And people were dying left and right. Folks were fleeing all of the major cities to get away from the infection. They didn't understand what caused it didn't understand in those days. They simply knew that being around other people was probably going to be problematic. 
And so they were fleeing to the countryside left and right. But the bishop of Carthage, a man by the name of Cyprian, begged the Christians to stay in the city and care for the sick. And so they did. They buried the dead, not only the dead of their families, but the pagan neighbors. They cared for the sick, not only their own family members or church members, but their pagan neighbors as well. And some of them paid the ultimate price by getting the plague themselves and dying. One of the greatest, one of the greatest upsurges in conversions came in the wake of that three-year plague as people looked around at their own relatives and their own neighbors who were pagans and didn't follow Jesus Christ. And those people abandoned them. And the servants of Jesus Christ stayed and served them. It was interesting. I read uh, on an atheist blog post some time ago. It's called The Atheist Republic. A man was complaining about... He says, is anybody else bothered by the fact that um, all the hospitals seem to have religious names? Did you ever think about that? It's not so true here. LGH is not a religious name, but we used to have a hospital in Lancaster called St. Joseph's. There are hospitals called St. Anthony's and St. Thomas. There's, a, there's Holy Spirit hospitals. There's Mount Sinai hospitals. There's a Holy, uh, Holy Cross hospital. There's Trinity Hospital up in... Uh, Central PA, there's an evangelical hospital. And he took offense with it. He was offended by this. And I, I wanted to just send him an article. I was like, dude, read your history. We have hospitals today because of Christians and Jewish people as well who believe that people are made in the image of God. The first hospital was in, put in Caesarea in 369 A.D., by mid-1500s, there were 37,000 Benedictine monasteries that were caring for the sick exclusively. Most of the retirement homes that began, let's go back 100-plus years, were begun by church groups. Interestingly today, how many people serve on ambulance crews that are Christians? In this church, we have over 30 foster and adopted children at Keystone. And by the way, you guys are my heroes. Think the world of you. What a wonderful way to fulfill the call of the church to serve the orphan and the widow. This morning, I've asked uh, someone from um, ministry here that we support Keystone Safe Families for Children to talk a little bit more about how we can serve children. Wonderful ministry. Uh, families just like yours that op get some training and open your home to uh, a child who might be in uh, parents going through dire straits, might be cancer, it might be a, a breakup of a home, might be something else where they need a home for a child for four weeks or two weeks or two months. And I want you to watch a video here, and then I'm going to have Elaine Shank come up and, and talk to you about the ministry.
people are looking at us and they're wondering, is the church gonna step up or where is the church in these times that we're living in? And Safe Families is one way where we're like, no, yeah, we're here and we wanna care for these kids. Let us help you and, and come alongside you in, in the trial that you're going through. We're John and Holly Zimmerman. We have uh, four kids, um, 13, 11, nine and six. So we had heard of Safe Families from um, a contact outside of Peoria, and I remember several years ago hearing about it and thinking that is a really cool ministry. I, I wish that that would come to Peoria. So as soon as we heard that Bethany was doing a training, we were there, and immediately we thought this is something we'd like to get involved with. One thing that really I liked about it was the fact that it was before DCFS and the state would get involved. So this was an opportunity for the church to step up and to be a, the church in the lives of people that may or may not be believers. I think most of the families that we've been involved with have not been believers, so it's a great opportunity to, to show Christ. Also, just knowing that this is something we could um, come around the whole family, not just the child. We'd be able to get involved with the kid and the parents and maybe even um, other brothers and sisters and try to make a difference in a family's life and know that uh, it would just be for a temporary period of time. I'm a mother of four, and it's hard to explain to people. Um, as a child, I had two kids, and I didn't have the resources that I needed. My sister told me about Safe Families. She told me it was a very good program that I should look into as far as support and help and everything with my kids. I decided to get involved with Safe Families simply because I needed the help and I felt like I wanted more in life and in order for me to want more in life and better for my children, I needed to reach out and actually put my pride to the side and get help. I guess we tend to be a, a family that's maybe a little bit more pragmatic in, the in our Christian walk where we don't necessarily look for signs or the clouds need to say, yes, do this, or no, or maybe, or something like that. In the Word, it does say, hey, care for the orphans and the widows. And this seemed to maybe make sense for us. And so we're like, you know what, let's, let's give this a try and see where it leads. We don't, we don't know what's gonna happen here, but there was a way to get a little bit of training, understand what we might be getting ourselves into, and then talk with our kids about it and say, hey, we're on a new journey here. They've actually become a part of my family and I feel like I've become a part of their family. And I can always have somebody to talk to whenever I need help or overwhelmed or just don't know what to do about a certain situation. Maybe for someone who's considering even foster care or thinking about their family and how they might um, just start bringing kids into their home because it is a temporary amount of time. It's a volunteer program. It's pretty simple to get involved. There's a couple of training sessions and then some paperwork. And um, there's emails that come that this is a child who has a need, the placement, and then the length of time. And uh, you can just see if it seems to fit your family. You can see how many children you're willing to take and the ages of the kids you'd be willing to take. So um, I would just say it's a great place to start to see how that works for your family because it is kind of a low commitment, whether that's good or bad. It just allows you to, to step into it and try it, and, and then you can go from there. Expect somewhat of the unexpected. Um, there are, Safe Families is set up and designed to, to operate in a certain way, 
but every case is different. You know, our four kids, our four cases, I guess, that we've had come through our home have had different situations and there's been a different time frame associated with each one, different personalities and that sort of thing. And so rely on God and he's gonna be there. He'll sustain you through it. He, what he calls us to, um, which is to serve the orphan and, and the widow, um, he equips us for in ways that we don't even know before we go into it. The church does step up and helps out, whether it is just being a friend or providing some respite. Um, but the church is someone that I, that I think as people consider this, you know, what can they expect? You can expect your brothers and sisters in Christ to walk with you through this journey and someone that you can lean on. I'm on. Okay, there we go. Hi, I'm Elaine. Uh, it's so nice to be with you this morning. So I'm here representing Safe Families for Children. Um, <clears throat> Safe Families is a movement that is fueled by compassion to keep children safe and families intact. It's an outreach that temporarily hosts children and surrounds families in crisis with a network of supports. So four things that I think that you should know about Safe Families for, for Children. First of all, it is a ministry of the church. That means that you do it. Uh, the church raises up host families, family friends, family coaches, and ministry leads to support families going through hard things, and also then to support each other. Safe Families for Children is volunteer-driven, meaning that it can't be court-ordered, and that we can't compel parents to use this ministry. They have to decide that this is what they want. But in the same way, the host families are not compensated financially. It's professionally supported. That's because um, helping others can be messy and confusing. And sometimes these situations can, uh, you just need that little extra help navigating what you're going through. It also catches kids before they go into foster care. I don't know if you noticed in the video, but it said, about 50% of kids in foster care get reunified with family. That's a terrible percentage. In Safe Families for Children, our reunification rate is over 90%. The goal is that the kids go back with their families. We get all kinds of reasons for hosting. Uh, hospitals call us. Sometimes we'll get a mom who's going to have a baby, and there's no one to watch her other children. We can host those kids and come around the mom as she has a newborn. Sometimes we get calls uh, from, for homelessness, for unemployment. Two stories. Uh, there was a young mom in Lancaster County Prison who was pregnant. And in normal circumstances, uh, Lancaster County Children Youth would come in, remove the baby, and then she'd have to work very, very hard to get her baby back. In this particular situation, after she had the baby, we hosted the baby. The host mom would bring the baby in to see placing parent in, in prison. In the same time, visiting her in prison and providing that support. When she got out of prison in a few months, baby was returned to her. Host family stayed involved. In fact, the whole gang came to our Bethany Christmas party and it was so, it was so exciting to watch. Another thing that seems to be coming up a lot, we hear about the opioid crisis. There's a lot of people that struggle with addiction. 
And one of their motivating factors to getting sober, to getting clean, is their children. So when children, youth, and families come in and remove the children from them, they've lost that motivation. They've lost that hope. We can host children whose parents need to enter into rehab. We got a Christmas card from a mom who last year, we hosted her children while she went into a 90-day intensive rehabilitation program. She's been sober for a year, and she's just so thankful for the difference that Safe Families made in her, in her family. Cassie and I have a table in the lobby. We'd be happy to talk with you after the service. We want to encourage you in ways that you can open your hearts, open your homes, and open your arms to loving people. Thanks, Elaine. Would you express your appreciation for Elaine being here this morning? And just, uh, we have a number of families that are already trained in the congregation. Um, I know Art and Pat. Anybody else here who's gone through the, the training? Oh, Nick and Lindsay. Anybody else? Um, I'd encourage you to go back to the table uh, talk to Elaine and Cassie about the possibility of um, no commitment, right? No commitment, so just talk to them about where do I go from here if I want to find more information and give them your name and we can follow up. We're going to probably have a, another time here in the next couple of months where we have a, a more information um, kind of meeting for you uh, before we get to the next step of, of training and uh, having you prepared to open your home. But I hope that you will consider this as a, as a possible way for, for you to be involved in really making a difference in some kids' lives. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for uh, this time together this morning. And thanks for the reminder all over again of how, um, why it is that you value every human being under the sun. As we all bear your imprint. We all have your stamp on us that's unique from all other living creatures. And because of that, we are called to treasure all living human beings in a way that is unique. And Father, I, I confess, as I um, shared with the elders this morning an article that I was reading, I, I, I confess that I have not been on the front line of this um, effort to win hearts and minds, uh, to understand the uniqueness of these little children. Yeah, they're not quite fully formed yet. Yes, they're not out of the womb yet. But, but that they are people, and people that are already at 10 weeks gestation, already made in the image, in your image. And I confess that, Lord, I pray that you would show me ways in which to be more engaged and, and more involved in, in the compelling message that you have given us in Scripture, and to share that uh, with, with, our, with our communities and our neighbors. Um, for, Father, I pray for just open hearts for us, as we consider whether or not safe families would be a way that you'd want to use us to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, to serve our community uh, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.